Well, we are entering the time in the traditional calendar of the church called Advent. Pardon? Starts next Sunday. And the reason that I mention that is twofold. But the idea of Advent is the idea of anticipation. The whole nature of that season is a building of excitement, a building of anticipation for what bursts upon the world on that first Christmas day that would bring good tidings of great joy to all people. Part of the point of Advent, and there is a separation in terms of the carols that the traditional carols that we sing and that are sung all over the world, there's a, there's a separation in those carols of tone and content in the bleak midwinter. Those kinds of carols are framing the idea that the world in sin and error pines for God to bring justice. And that's, we'll hope to think about that during this season. I think the thing that is utterly obvious to all of us is that the world's broken. Is that there's, there's, there's pain and horror. Things that happen to people and things that people bring on themselves. But a lot of bad stuff. But if you walk into... David Boyd's house, probably almost any time during this coming month, you will hear Handel's Messiah. Remind me, brother, how many, how long did it take him to write that? It was just a... Yeah. One of the greatest assemblies of music ever penned, and it's almost all Scripture is written in less than two months. Now, part of the reason for that is because the words were already supplied. The music was the, was the tough part. But one of those passages in probably the most famous of all of those songs in the Messiah is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. 
upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And we'll have a scripture this morning in our readings that will talk about the government of David. But it's penned by Ezekiel. Ezekiel was not contemporary with David, if I'm remembering correctly. And so he can't be talking about a future government of a man named David. He is talking about the throne of David, which Christ would occupy. So we can think about that as we're hearing that passage this morning. But here's my question. There are two very freighted terms in this passage. Lots and lots of depth and meaning. The government shall be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. First question, is this referring to something that hasn't happened yet? It's something that, Brother Frank, is is something that is happening. The already and not yet. It is an unfolding, the increase of his government. So, the question remains. I haven't heard it answered. Are we talking about something that is to come or something that has begun? That's exactly right. It is both, but it's important for us to realize that it is both. Because we tend to, Taz has made this point over and over. I've tried to make this point in this class. We've heard it from others. How do we think about this? I think I tend to project this into the future. One of these days, it's all going to happen. That takes a lot of prophetic tension out of this passage because who are the prophets speaking to? First and foremost, they're speaking to the people that they were contemporary with. We get to read them. We get to apply what they were saying to us because it was also meant for us. But they were talking to the people that were living in their towns, living in their cities, living in the countryside where they were walking at that point in time. Well, that makes, that's not a real profound statement. It's obviously true. But the point of that is we've got these two terms, government, And we have things that immediately come to mind when we say the term government. But I think in terms of this passage, we often abstract them. 
that is not exactly something that's what we would term political or social, but it's something more ethereal, that it's an idea of sort of self-government, how, how we will be changed and how we will govern, how our lives will be governed. I'd love to hear from somebody. Is this talking about government? As we would think of it, as when you flip on the television, most of the talk is about. And I'm not, I'm not going into a political discussion here. I'm talking, though, about the necessary implications of the kingdom of God present in the world increasing. What does that look like? This dark world in sin and error pining, what does it look like when a child is born to us, a son is given to us, upon whom the government will rest? The governance of the world will rest. I'm open. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, all this is germane.
Right. And I'd make the point, and I'd make the point that the governments were really not coming to the church asking, tell us what to do. The governments were saying either we're on board or we are here, you are there. My, my point in that is that the governments of men in Scripture have always been the problem, the thing to which people are drawn in idolatry. The desire to return to Egypt was the design, desire to return to a social order with all that that entailed. Can you even imagine? I want to go back and be a slave, a kept person, Bad as that was. I want to go back there. Don't like this. Too much risk involved. Governments minimize, in certain ways, minimize risk. That's, that's the government business, in effect. Always and at all times and in all places. And the point is, the idea of corruption and where and where and when and how and all of that... I guess my, and we've had this conversation many times, I think, personally, I think our assumption should be that corruption is the default position. The radical thing is to, is to be moving away from corruption. And I think we can see in history as corrupt as and Israel's the perfect paradigm because these are the elect people of God, and yet what do they do? They constantly revert to the mean, right? The mean is the mean of the governments of this world, in essence. The societies of this world, in essence. And again, this isn't a political discussion as much as it is a moral discussion. The societies of this world aggrandize human power at the individual level or at the societal level. That's the first bargain in the garden. That's what's happening with Cain and Abel. That's what's happening with Lamech. That's what's happening at Babel. That's what's happening, and we can go forward and we can see that pattern trace. So the expectation that this prophecy is talking about would one seem to be out of whack but in some senses would even seem potentially to us to be something not to be desired. 
Because if governments are inherently corrupt, then anything that takes on the power of government, anything that mixes itself with government, allies itself with government, or has anything to do with government, in essence, could be an inherently corrupting thing. So what are we talking about here? What would the government of the given son look like? What would the government of the given son look like? That's what we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks. What would this society look like? What would a society that's going to that's gonna bend this thing back from, the, from that hard middle, what's it going to look like? First and foremost, right? It has to be in submission to a greater government. It has to be acknowledged. It has to be expressed. I'm convinced of that. I think if we don't express and acknowledge that it will never happen. Words and deeds don't always go together, but you'll seldom find people doing things that they aren't also talking about or thinking about to the point that they could give expression to them if need be. Is that, is that true or untrue? Does that make sense? So a government that the given son would run would look like those principles that we've, that we've talked about. It would, first and foremost, honor the ultimate governor of the world and say what we do needs to look like what he desires. See, we've been trained to separate those two things. This is certainly something that we have to wrestle with in terms of how that is accomplished. How does that play out? Is that simply in terms of pushing those buttons in the voting booth? Is that in terms of talking with you know, the, the county commissioners about a zoning law that would push... Uh, people out of certain areas or, uh, or potentially invite other people to come into areas because the folks that are already there are, are in effect being forced to pay for them to come. That's what are called tax abatements, by the way. Uh, why do some get them and some don't? We talked about that non-favoritism principle being the, probably the fundamental principle of social interaction in God's order is the concept of non-favoritism. So this government of the Prince of Peace is going to look like the honor of God. David wrote something that sent it to me this week. Talk, just going through those passages in John where Jesus has said, I'm doing nothing on my own. I am listening. I am listening. I am seeking the Father's will. You are not hearing anything different from me than what the Father has always been talking about and always desiring. He is the second Adam. He is the true Israel of God. He is the one who is evangelizing the nations. 
He is the one who is being fruitful and multiplying in that original creation mandate to spread God's order throughout all of creation. So, if we are acknowledging God, we are automatically being humble at that level. A, the government of the Son of God will be a humble government. The government of the Son of God will be a government that risks, that says, I am willing if the social structure is properly established, I'm willing to risk that things will turn out right. I'm willing to risk that. That whole Sabbath principle. Walter Brueggemann has, has written that book, was Sabbath, as, Sabbath as Resistance. In effect, as resistance to the culture that says we can solve it, we'll get ahead of it, we'll head it off where nothing... But we don't because we don't apply the principles of God. We don't rest in what God has promised. We don't believe it. And so we say, we've got to have a program. We've got to intervene. We don't, we don't trust God to intervene. We don't even trust Him to intervene through the order that he's created in the universe. Now, along with that government, and and that government, by the way, will be one that upholds the family, will be one that places the family in its proper sphere, meaning it doesn't intervene in that. It protects and recognizes property. There are all sorts of implications here. It enforces what it is supposed to enforce. It enforces contracts. It brings its sword against the evildoer, literal or figurative. Parse it any way you want to. It applies its laws fairly. doesn't favor one party against another in any way. Even a party that looks like they deserve favoritism at a certain level. And the government brings peace. What peace does it bring? It could be and and will be a far more what we would think of as pacifistic kind of relation with the nations and even internally than what we've ever seen in our, in our lifetimes or in world history. There's another element of peace. What peace does this government of the sun bring? Say again. 
And that means, as Todd put it, deep all rightness, or is that? Deep okay, exactly, in, 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 its fully, in its fully orbed dimension. But that's something to say, but what, what pops into our mind when we say it is the question. What do we all interpret what fully orbed deep all rightness means or should look like? Or is there a picture of fully orbed deep all rightness? If I can use that term. The peace that we have that the sun brings is what? What is the nature of the peace that the sun brings? Peace with God, under whose appropriate wrath the world stands. Is that true? So justification is the peace of God. Justification is unearned. Well, no, it's not. It is absolutely earned. It is utterly earned. It's just not utterly or absolutely earned by us. The peace of God has been bought through a peace treaty. By what? And this is where the dots have to get connected. By what? By a son who was obedient. By a son who lived the creation mandate. By a son who kept the law. By a son whose way of thinking and way of life is the template that the Spirit writes on our heart. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what Second Timothy, uh, you know, Paul is saying, be reconciled to God. This is our. This is our. What we're saying to the nations is be reconciled to God. The point we've been making, you guys haven't been here, but the point we've been making is that was what Israel was supposed to be saying to the nations, in essence. Deuteronomy four, five through nine. This is what you are here for. You are here to show the nations a way. A way that leads to flourishing. A way that leads away from oppression. A way of peace. The peace, the only peace that we can have is what? To be in Christ, right? In Christ, another freighted term. In Christ means not just that we're reliant on Christ, but we have been placed into His body. We are the body of Christ. 
And what would Christ in the body be doing? He'd be listening to the Father. He'd be declaring what the Father had said. He would be bringing peace. Now, I love to invite some of you folks that have been involved in ministries of peace in the most unpeaceful environment to talk about that maybe for a minute. And I'm thinking about Taz, who works with parolees. I'm thinking about Frank, who's in the jail constantly. He's bringing people to Christ, but not everybody he talks to comes to Christ. I'm thinking about Jimmy, who's been involved in the jail ministry. And in the briefest of ways, and it should almost be a panel discussion in a sense, in the briefest of ways, the idea of what has been your experience when, when you have not been able to bring peace to a person? Defined as we've defined it. Todd's made this point extremely well in a variety of formats and circumstances. And that is, ultimately, we can't have high expectations for what's going to happen in an individual's life or what's going to happen in the bigger picture of our society, what's going to happen in the world until and unless as we are bringing people to this reconciliation with the Father through the Son. And they are becoming obedient. So I don't know which one of you guys, but I'd love to hear in terms of, let's say, a success story versus a, a tragic story. And we're not saying that those stories have ended. I, you know, certainly Tim and Karen could speak into this as well. Numbers of us who have suffered with folks who have established a life pattern that is like wearing a giant kick-me sign on their back. And we can point to, you know, environmental aspects, and we can point to nurture aspects and all these kind of things, but at the end of the day, the question is, when good news is given, what happens? What, what's the nature of that? Any of you guys want to speak into that? Yeah, ever? Mm-hmm. Sure. And I realized in that that you that it's not my work. Right. It's not for me to do. All I do is plant a seed. You know, if they want to pray, I'm there. Mm -hmm. We'll be there to do that. But I'm plant the seed and say, you know, you don't have to do this with me. Mm -hmm. You can you can go home and try to keep it home. But you know, it's I, I 
Right. But in effect, you were inviting them to be reconciled to God. Because that's what the gospel is, right? Yeah, and you want to be hopeful, and you'd like to have good thoughts, and yet there will be times when you can almost predict, I would think. Jimmy? Yeah, and this is not a matter of looking at this clinically and saying, you know, this subject exhibited these kinds of characteristics and they were not. The treatment was unsuccessful. Brother Frank, what would you say in your ministry? And you can tell you could tell stories, you know, all afternoon. But what would you say in your ministry? I know your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. You're talking with folks about why they're there and what freedom can be offered. What makes the difference between those who hear the message and who don't hear the message at a given point in time. We'll, we'll, we'll reserve uh, God's sovereignty to, to include an ongoing conversation with these folks through a variety of means as Romans 1 through 3 talks about. But, but what, what would you say? What's, what's the difference? Don't harden your heart. I'm glad to hear his voice. He speaks to people on the other side of the mark. I don't want to deal with those things that are on God's book. Mm-hmm. I don't want to walk in the light. And I don't want to. They love the darkness. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, so I'm probably not 
So this ministry of reconciliation is a ministry at its root. I'll guarantee that every one of you folks that have worked in the, in the criminal justice system would say, ultimately, it's a matter of repentance or not. At the end of the day, it's the acknowledgement that I am not the God of the world. That I have wronged the God of the world who loved me desperately my entire life and before. And I've wronged him. And so thing one, and this is thing one for both individual government, the government of our own souls, and the government of the nations is the same thing. It's repentance. It is repentance. And it is what within the church we have to be talking to each other about. It's what we have to be declaring. You can't have the joy without the, without the repentance. You can't have it. It won't happen. Don't fool yourself. Be reconciled to God. And let me tell you about me. If you, if you need an example, let me tell you about me. Same shape. Same shape. Only the repentant can dwell in the government of the Almighty. Yes. Oh, no absolutely. Oh. 
Yeah. I mean, repentance only has reference to that. It can't have reference to anything else. It can't be, I'm sorry things have turned out this way, and I'm ready for them not to be this way. That's not repentance. That's the kind of repentance I've exercised from time to time. I'm ready for things to change, but I'm not ready to change. I'm not ready to acknowledge who is really God. And that's the deal. And that's the deal. And that's what Christ wants. That's what Christ did. That's how the government is on his shoulders. It's the basis for which that government could be placed on his shoulders was his perfect obedience, his perfect submission. 